apologies for the temperature. It is centrally controlled by the YMCA, and um, so we persist. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for these good people who have come together to worship your name, to hear from your word. And Lord, we pray that you would do exactly that, that you would speak to us, that you would warm up our hearts and our minds, that you would encourage us in these days in which we are living. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning by wishing everyone a Happy New Year. You're looking at me perplexed. New Year's is over a month away, right? Well, it depends on what calendar you're following. You may have not realized it when you walked in here this morning, but you left the ordinary world with its calendar, and you stepped into a sacred space where time is thought about differently. In our worship, we follow something called the church calendar or the liturgical calendar, and today is the first Sunday of that calendar, and so I wish you again a happy new year. It is the first Sunday of Advent. Now, the church calendar can be a very uh, blessed thing. It can encourage us in our worship and our discipleship, but it might be something with which we're not all very familiar. And so I want to give a brief introduction to it. Actually, I want to let this video, if we have that ready, it does a nice job of introducing us to what's coming. Christians are people who tell time differently. It's not as if they avoid clocks and calendars. No one escapes that. But from the beginning, they have engaged in a very different kind of rhythm, finding themselves in a world where time has been transformed into an instrument of God's revelation. In other words, Christians made their own calendar and relived the story of God throughout the year. Let me demonstrate. So the church calendar is divided into two halves. The first half starts in December with Advent, and it stretches all the way to Pentecost in May or June. And this part of the year tells the story of Jesus from his birth and death, his resurrection and ascension. And the second half of the year starts at Pentecost and then goes all the way to Christ the King Sunday in late November. It tells the story of God's people, the church. For the next six months, the church follows this calendar and relives the story of Jesus. As any good story does, we'll start right at the beginning with chapter 1. This is where we observe the season of Advent and wait with expectation and prepare for the birth of Jesus. As chapter 1 ends, we move to chapter 2. This chapter brings news of great joy as we celebrate Jesus' birth and the feast of Christmas. We then turn the page to chapter 3. We remember the appearance of Jesus to the entire world, represented by the visiting magi from afar. The story begins its climax with chapter 4. This ushers in the solemn season of Lent, where, like Jesus' real desert, we spend 40 days in a metaphorical desert, pulling away from created comforts to make space for God. This chapter is long and difficult, but the joy of chapter 5 is worth the wait. 
Jesus' resurrection from the dead makes Easter Sunday the ultimate celebration. Which then leads to the sixth and final chapter. Jesus' story concludes not only with his ascension into heaven, but with the coming of his spirit, sent to create a new community, the church, to continue his work on earth. To listen to the church tell the story of the Lord is to listen to the Lord of the church. Reliving the first six chapters of the year not only shapes our worship, but it brings Christ into our very lives today. In Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany, it's as if we're with him in his birth and earthly ministry. In Lent, Easter, and Pentecost, we are again right by his side through death, burial, and resurrection. Living our faith through the lens of Jesus sanctifies our own lives. For his is an epic story of darkness and light, grief and joy, struggle and rest. It mirrors the tensions and complexity of our own stories. And through it all, we're placed right in the middle of the great drama of God's redemption of the world. So you're invited to live the Christian year these next six months. The ordinary season is past. It's time to inhabit the story of God. So as this video shows us, gives us a flavor, the church calendar is arranged around the life of Jesus, especially uh, for these next six months. And because of this, I think it's one of the greatest tools of discipleship. If we want to be followers of Jesus, what better thing can we do than every year to walk through the high points of his story and let those sink into our lives and shape our stories? And so that's what we're going to do for the next uh, six months. And if you've been around King of Kings for a while, you know that I usually do not preach from the assigned readings um, for the church calendar called a lectionary. I prefer to do series from different books of the Bible. But starting this morning, I'm going to become an Anglican. Um, and with very few exceptions, uh, the preaching is going to focus on the gospel reading uh, from the lectionary. And I hope that that can be a way to complement our journey as we walk with Christ. Uh, there are different lectionaries out there. Uh, we will send out over our happenings email the one that we'll be using because you may want to include those in your weekly study, uh, the readings and particularly the gospel reading uh, every week. So today we start Advent, and this, I think, is a favorite season for many, many people. I love Advent in large part because I love Christmas. Some of my best memories growing up are from those weeks leading up to Christmas. There was a sense of anticipation and excitement, but also um, learning to wait now, when I was a child, I was waiting for presents. That's what I was excited about. But now looking back, I think that actually was teaching me the very rhythm and meaning of Advent. Even though we weren't necessarily celebrating it, it was teaching me um, that rhythm of waiting, that joyful anticipation of what was about to be revealed. Lots of other reasons that we um, love Advent 
and its connection to Christmas. It has some of the best music of the whole year. I know some people are purist, and they do not sing the Christmas carols in Advent, um, but regardless, we're, we're looking forward to those times where we get to sing that music and hear it even in the shopping mall. That's always one of the most curious things when you're walking through a shopping mall, and you hear this song that's proclaiming the lordship of Jesus, and you're looking around being, do y'all hear this? Are y'all getting me here? It's also one of the greatest times to proclaim the gospel because um, the, the aspect of the gospel that's proclaimed um, in Advent and leading up to Christmas, the, the incarnation of the Son of God is one of the most powerful, that, that this God would humble himself to come among us and love us and redeem us is something we don't get tired of hearing. So in Advent, we get to look back at this first coming of Jesus, and in this season, prepare ourselves, even step into um, the life of Mary, as you imagine, and some of you women have experienced pregnancy. Some of you experienced pregnancy during Advent, and what that feels like to, to be waiting, to have something growing, and so we do that in our spiritual lives as we look towards Jesus's birth. There is, however, another theme of Advent that sometimes gets lost. The word Advent, you might know, just means the arrival or appearance or coming of something. And so, appropriately, at Advent, we look back to Jesus' first coming, his first appearance. But that's not his only coming. There's another appearance of Jesus, his second coming that's yet to take place. And during Advent, we also look forward to Jesus' second coming. The collect prayer, you may have heard it, for this first, first Sunday of Advent points us to this, as does the gospel reading. They look forward to Jesus' return. They encourage us to live our lives now in light and in reference to that coming reality. You see, friends, the Christian gospel, it doesn't even hold together without the doctrine of the second coming. As good as his birth and his death and his resurrection were, they are incomplete if Jesus is not coming back. And does not our experience tell us this? We can look around. I'm sure you've had this experience and say, this cannot be as good as it gets, right? The wrongs in this world will be dealt with, won't they? The brokenness, the sin in my own life, it will be redeemed, will it not? My body, the illness, the suffering that I have, or my loved ones, that, that will be healed, yes? My relationships will be reconciled, won't they? Things like cancer and terrorism and poverty and racism and mental illness and divorce and abuse. Please tell me that one day those will be expelled from our world. And the answer of the Christian gospel is a resounding, yes, they will. All things will be made new. Christ is putting the world back together again. And we know that in part by looking back to things like Christmas. The promises that were made, the great acts of power, the way the kingdom came into the world. And we can celebrate how it's already at work, but we also know it by the hope of looking forward. In our creed that we'll confess in just a moment, we will say he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. 
That is essentially part of the Christian faith. We have to have it in our confession. We have to have it in any explanation of the Christian gospel. But it's not just a creedal thing. It also has to be part of our lived experience, part of our discipleship. Don't try to live the Christian life without an anticipation of the second coming. It will be incomplete. And so on this first Sunday of Advent, our hearts, our mind, our attention is directed primarily to Jesus' return, his second coming. And we see that come out in Matthew chapter 24, our gospel reading. Now, Matthew 24 is one of the most confusing and debated chapters in the New Testament. And I want to give a little bit of context for that. And then I want to look at three aspects of Jesus' second advent, his coming again, from this chapter. So if you brought along your Bibles, go ahead and turn them to Matthew 24. The passage begins. Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple in Jerusalem. And as they did, his disciples were were commenting on the buildings. In ancient Jerusalem, the temple and the whole complex around there just dominated the city. It was this massive part of the city, and they were kind of impressed by it. And they were saying, wow, look at these structures, Jesus. Well, Jesus is not impressed. And in response to their words, he speaks a prophecy of judgment over the temple. And if you've spent some time in the Gospels, you know that there's this sort of tension, almost this fight going on between Jesus and the temple. We know that what happens through Jesus is that he really becomes the one-man temple, that he replaces it, and it's no longer needed. But that is another thing for another day. But he um, pronounces this prophecy over the temple. He says, you see all these, do you not? This is verse 2. Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That's a very strange and a very bold thing to say. It will get him in trouble later in his trial. What is he saying here? Do his words mean something? Do they have power? Well, they do, friends. If you like evidence of it, I encourage you to get on a plane and travel to Jerusalem and go stand outside where the temple used to be. You'll see one thing that's not there, a temple. It's not there anymore. But you'll also see some stones. You could put that picture up. Those stones are the stones that were thrown down by the Romans in 70 AD. You can go see them with your very own eyes. Jesus means what he says. His word has power. So Jesus leaves with his disciples the temple area, and they go up the Mount of Olives just across the valley where they can still see the temple. His disciples, they come to him, and they ask Jesus two questions. It's important to know there are two questions. Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? That's verse 3. The two questions are these. When will these things be? Meaning, 
the destruction of the temple, what Jesus just spoke about. When's that going to happen? The second question is, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, to the disciples, I think those were one and the same question in their minds. Because the temple was so central in their worldview that if it was to be destroyed, life as they knew it would be over. If the temple was destroyed, then it must be the end of the age and Jesus must be coming back. Well, we know that in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. But here we are, 2,000 years later, and Jesus still has not returned. So what they thought was going to be one event, we now know from experience, is separated. And that's really what sets up our passage. Starting in Matthew 24, verse 4, and continuing for the rest of the chapter, Jesus is going to answer their two questions. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? But we're not always sure which question he's answering, the when or the what. And that's where the confusion comes in. Should we apply what he says in Matthew 24 to the destruction of the temple, which is a past event for us? Or should we apply what he says to the second coming, a future event? Some scholars see it as a past event. Some see it as a future event. Some see it as some combination of both. I like how the scholar Dale Bruner approaches it. He sees a combination, but particularly he sees the destruction of the temple as a prototype or a precursor for the second coming and the end of the world. So what Jesus says can really be applied to both in some way. It applies to the immediate event for them, which is the temple being destroyed in their generation, in their lifetime, but it also applies to the more distant event, still future for us, the second coming. And a lot of time, even the Old Testament, that's how prophecy works. It has a near-term fulfillment, and then it has a greater fulfillment in the future. To truly be a student of this passage, some of you may have studied it before, you, you have to consider both horizons and consider what that means to have the temple destruction as well as the second coming. But for our purposes today, in keeping with Advent, I want to consider the future event, Jesus' return. And from Matthew 24, I want to look at three aspects of this glorious event. First, leading up to his return, things are going to be difficult, very difficult. Verses 5 through 13, Jesus identifies some very challenging circumstances that will happen before he returns. He says there's going to be false messiahs leading people astray. There'll be lots of wars. Nations will rise against other nations. There will be famine. There will be earthquakes. Christians will be persecuted. They will be delivered up to oppression. They will be put to death. They will be hated. Many Christians will actually fall away. They'll betray one another, and they'll hate one another. Lawlessness, rebellion, things like that will go up. That will increase, while love will decrease. This does not sound like a very pleasant time in which to live. And the question that faces us as we read and interpret the passage is, well, when will this happen? Sounds like there might be an intensification of these symptoms right before the end. Jesus uses this term birth pains to describe uh, some of this condition. 
And so like a real birth, there may be increased labor pains just before Jesus returns. But let me ask you this. Over the last 2,000 years, of all the conditions that Jesus mentions, when have these things not characterized our world? We've seen plenty of false religious figures leading people astray. War, famine, earthquakes, sadly, those things happen all the time. Christians persecuted, put to death, yes, that continues to happen. Christians falling away, betraying one another, sadly, all the time. Lawlessness increasing, love decreasing, every generation experiences this. You see, friends, I want to offer maybe a perspective that might be new to some of us. We've been living in the last days for 2,000 years. I think that's the best way to make sense of the biblical data. When Jesus died and rose again, the last days started. We're in them. They will conclude when Jesus returns. And there may be a last days of the last days where there could be an intensification, but we're already experiencing all of the birth pains, all of the symptoms. So what should that do to us? Should it fill us with dread and gloom? Should it make us kind of tune in and try to interpret and match up different things happening in the Middle East to see if we can predict the coming? No, I don't think that's what we need to do. Jesus isn't telling his disciples this to discourage them, but to prepare them. He wants to let them know the conditions of their discipleship between his ascension and his return. And they might not have understood it right away, but eventually his disciples got it. Listen to what Peter writes in chapter 4 of his first letter. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, this is normal. But too often, I think Christians treat suffering and turmoil as something strange. Sometimes it throws us off. It surprises us. And I think Jesus is teaching his disciples then and us now to not be surprised. Don't be alarmed. Expect this. These are the normal conditions of your discipleship. I might add these are the optimal conditions of discipleship. Not something we want, but something about suffering and persecution and trial actually brings out and strengthens our faith and reveals the witness of the church in a way that it just doesn't as much when we're comfortable. And I got to be honest, I'm wrestling at this moment in, in our culture, in our country. On the one hand, I celebrate the religious freedom. I celebrate that some of the moral things of the Christian faith are still in place. I, I don't want things to get darker and to turn more and more against Christians. And yet, I wonder if we're too comfortable in our religious freedoms. I wonder if we're grown so um, distaste for anything that might speak of persecution or hardship for us. I reflect on the Beatitudes. Where is the blessing pronounced from Jesus? Blessed are those who enjoy their religious freedoms. Well, that's not what he says. I think it is a blessing to enjoy those. But he says, blessed are those when people persecute you. That's the blessing. Do we run after that? I I don't think we'd run after it. 
but we're prepared for it. We're ready for it. There's also something paradoxically encouraging about all of these difficulties, all these labor pains. Because if there are labor pains, that means there's about to be new life, right? A mother knows that when labor comes upon her, well, that's not going to be fun. That's going to be difficult. But she knows that the moment is drawing near where she greets the new life and brings it into the world. So too with us. We don't love the pain. We don't love the suffering. We don't love the birth pains. And yet, we know it's not in vain. Because through these things, the Holy Spirit is bringing the joy of new life. So that's the first thing we know about his second advent. It's going to be difficult. Between his first coming and his second coming, it's always going to be difficult. The second thing we can see about his second coming is that it's going to be obvious. Look at verses 26 and 27. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. It's interesting to compare the two advents of Christ. The first one in Bethlehem, it was announced by angels. There was a glory around it, and shepherds heard about it, and wise men heard about it, and people came. But for the most part, it was hidden. Jesus came in great humility as a baby born in a stable, and most of the world had no idea that the Messiah had entered. He had come. They just carried on with their business. Well, Jesus' second advent will not be like this. It will not be subtle, and it will not be in humility. It will be with great power and glory. And it's not something that will happen in some remote wilderness or the privacy of someone's home. All the world will see it. That's why Jesus compares it to lightning. You're not going to miss it. You can see it from miles away. Verses 29 and following, Jesus says more about this event. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, some scholars believe this could be literal. The sun will actually go dark. Something will actually happen to the stars. We know that creation does respond to major events in Jesus' life. The stars bore witness to his birth. There was an unnatural darkness and an earthquake at his death. So it's not surprising that at this great and glorious event of his second coming that creation itself could have its own labor pains. And we would see that and experience that. That would certainly make things obvious. Other scholars, however, believe that the sun and stars and moon, that language is not literal, but it represents nations and kingdoms. And there's Old Testament precedent for that. If this is the case, then the world will be in complete political upheaval as Jesus returns. Powers, both visible political ones and invisible spiritual ones, will be shaken to their core when Christ returns. So whether it's literal or symbolic or both, the world is going to come undone at the return of Jesus, and it will be obvious. Our Lord continues in verse 30. 
Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds. From one end of heaven to the other. Again, different ways we can interpret this. Scholars aren't sure exactly what he means by the sign of the Son of Man that will appear in heaven. It may be that the sign of the Son of Man is the Son of Man coming. I think that could be the most obvious. He shows up and that's the sign. Whatever it is, it will be clear. It will be seen by everyone. We also have here a reference to Daniel 7. If you were here with us last week, we reflected on that chapter where the Son of Man comes on the clouds with great power and glory, and he's presented in this great court scene before the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and he's given the kingdom. Well, when he returns, Jesus is going to do so in such a way that makes it clear to everyone that he is that Son of Man from Daniel 7, that he is the world's true king. And now notice the response of the peoples of the earth. It's twofold. One response is that all of the tribes of the earth will mourn. There's a massive worldwide mourning at Jesus' return. Why? Well, it could be that there's a mourning unto repentance, that people are, are turning away from their sins and coming to them. I don't think that's the best explanation, though. I think it's more likely that this is a mourning coming from those individuals and those nations who did not believe that Jesus was their king, but now they've seen it and they can no longer deny it, but it's too late to repent for judgment has come. And so there's mourning. It is a grave day for many. But while some mourn, others are gathered. God's elect those who belong to King Jesus, who can be found in every corner of the globe. They are now brought together, no longer to suffer at the hands of the beastly nations. These saints will be taken home. They will be vindicated. They will be comforted. So first, Jesus' second coming will be difficult. Second, it will be obvious. Third, and finally, his second advent will be sudden. Verse 36, Jesus says some really surprising words, very curious words. He says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, nor the Son, but only the Father. Not even Jesus knows when his return will be. It's actually a shocking passage to try to understand how it is that Jesus is fully God and fully man, that which we confess. But somehow in his humanity, he took on some limitations of his divinity, including not knowing everything that could be known, not knowing everything that God his Father knew. Jesus did have miraculous knowledge about some things. We see that. But he says from his own mouth, not about this. I don't know. So if Jesus didn't know, and there's somebody out in our culture today predicting that they know well, we can know that they don't know because Jesus didn't know, right? I mean, is that clear enough? I don't mean to be mean to them. It's just, well, Jesus didn't. So how could you know if Jesus didn't know? Now, I wonder, and this is just a wondering, if Jesus now knows, now that he's glorified, now that he's at the right hand of God, perhaps he does now know, but when he spoke these words in his time on earth, he didn't know. What he did know was that it was going to be sudden. 
And he compares it to Noah. In the days of Noah, before the flood came, people were unaware. They were eating. They were drinking. They were marrying. They were doing their thing. And then the flood came. And they were swept away. We don't know when his coming will be. But we know it's going to be sudden. And so how might we live in light of this, knowing that it's going to come swiftly? Jesus tells us in verse 44, Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. He tells a couple of parables. Servants waiting for their master to return. Virgins waiting for the bridegroom to come. The point of them is all the same. Be ready, be watching, be faithful because he's coming back. And this, my friends, is where Advent is such a helpful season in our discipleship. It sharpens our waiting and our watching. It tells us that our waiting, it's not an idle waiting. It's not just waiting around twiddling our thumbs. This is where Paul in Romans 13, in that epistle reading for today, he gives us a great picture of the waiting. Chapter 13, verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer now to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. Paul also gets it. He knows that we're living on the edge of things. Jesus could break in at any moment, and so he tells us this. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. That's where our colic prayer gets that language. Almighty God, give us the grace to cast away the works of darkness and to put on the armor of life that in the last day when he shall come again, we may rise to the life immoral. And so during Advent, we look around, and in some ways, even as, as the, uh, the, the creation is getting darker, we, we see the darkness of the world. We remember those things. We, we pay attention to those things, and we pray for God's grace to cast off that darkness and to walk in the light and to work for the light and to wait for the light. Jesus' second coming reminds us that this Walking in and working for and waiting for is not in vain because the light will come. He came once, Advent 1. He will come again, Advent 2. And so, friends, if the second coming is not a part of your devotional life, it's not a part of your discipleship, then I would encourage you this Advent to cultivate it afresh in your prayers, in your worship, in your daily living. It is a foundational part of the gospel. It undergirds our hope, and it teaches us how to live well in this world as we wait for him to return and to make all things new. Would you pray with me?